Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. I'm back. Thank you to Ben Schulman and Julia Kreutz for filling in uh, last week. Some very fun shows from the two of them around Home Run Derby, around All-Star, around the Jays returning to play. Jays return to play on the weekend and remain probably the second hottest team in baseball after the Baltimore Orioles. They sweep the Diamondbacks. They've won eight of nine. They've won eight in a row when they get at least one hit. They're in pretty good shape, even if those three games on the weekend were not the cleanest of baseball games. 7-2 on Friday in a game where that could have been a blow. They left 11 on base. Uh, they got one big inning in the seventh there, but but the early parts of that game felt like they could have been bigger sooner. 5-2 win on Saturday. Really good one. A second consecutive game with a great showing from a bullpen that didn't have Jordan Romano all weekend. And then uh, 7-5 on Sunday in a game that should not have been that close. Uh, Mitch White doing his best to, I don't know, spread the save opportunities around and make sure other guys are getting uh, getting those high leverage points. Uh, overall, Jays sweep the Diamondbacks. They've won eight of nine. If you haven't been looking at the standings over the course of the All-Star break, here's where we sit. Tampa Bay has come down to earth a little bit. The Jays are only six games back in the American League East. Now, Baltimore sits between those teams. Uh, the Jays also holding on to the second wild card spot right now. Baltimore holds the first one. And the the herd behind them is starting to separate a little bit. Yankees and Boston still pretty close behind the Astros for that final spot. But the Angels are struggling quite dramatically. And the Mariners just kind of hang around 500. So good time for the Jays to find their footing and play some good baseball. A struggling San Diego Padres team comes here for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That is a struggling San Diego Padres team that among the disappointing teams in baseball, at least still really looks like a good baseball team on paper. Um, don't think you can take that squad too lightly. Let's reset with where the Jays are at. There's a, there was a bunch of news over the course of the weekend as well. Kevin Gosman, Hyunjin Ryu, uh, some other things, some rotation juggling already in the second half. A lot to get to. So we asked Arden Zwelling to come in studio. Arden of Sportsnet, of Sportsnet.ca. Uh, how are you, man? You got to spend the weekend doing sideline stuff in the sun of not getting any laptops broken with foul balls or anything like that. How are you doing? Good. My person is intact. My laptop is intact. And as you said, the Blue Jays uh, are undefeated in uh, games in which they have a hit uh, over the past several weeks. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. You <laughs> add in the all-star break there. It has been, yeah, other than the no-hitter, which is, uh, you know, baseball's weird. But that's a pretty inexplicable one, given the way they and of course, the the quality of competition here has not been dramatically high. The White Sox are pretty bad. The Tigers are pretty bad. The Diamondbacks have cratered back to earth here, but you can only beat the teams you're playing, right? Yeah, and it was cool being at that no-hitter in uh, Detroit. Bendix and Smith and I had that series. We were kind of texting each other during the game. Like, you're not you're not rooting for it, but you want to see history, right? When you have the opportunity. So that was pretty cool to be there for. It's, that's the thing where, like, I mean, I wasn't there, but I, I haven't seen a no-hitter live. The closest I got was the Dustin McGowan bid back in, I don't know, 2008 or whatever it right. was. Um, so, yeah, I feel like maybe... You know, I, I kind of felt in that one like Brandon Belt felt where it's like a, it's a two-run game and if you got to throw down a bunt to break up the no-hitter because it's a close game, you got to do it. But if that was like 5 nothing, I would have been fully, all right, let's see the no-hitter. Let's get the history in. It was funny talking to Belt after the game as well because I asked him, like, hey, were you bunting for a hit? There, Yeah, of course I was. Are you kidding me? Like, I don't care about it. It's a two-run game. We need base runners mm -hmm. right now. So he was not concerned about any kind of unwritten rules in that situation. Oh, what are you going to do? Not 
try to not try your best to get a hit there. And then come playoff time, you missed home field in the wild card or you missed the AL East by one game and you're back thinking, well, I tried to play the unwritten rules in a no hitter yeah. could have had a runner on base for Vlad to, to tie the game or something like that. It's uh he said, I couldn't believe how far back the defense was playing me, which I was like, well, I mean, you're Brandon belt. Like, yeah. It's not the bunt used to be a thing for him in the yeah. shift world. But nowadays I don't think that there's too many third basemen that are creeping in on Brandon belt. No, no, not too many at all, I don't think. Um, maybe that's the play now with Dalton Varsho since he uh, he hasn't been getting many other hits. Uh, we'll talk about him in a little bit. So from, from this stretch of play, and, you know, there were a couple of the things that have plagued the Blue Jays throughout the season this weekend as well. couple outs on the base paths, a couple defensive gaffes that you can understand Kikuchi trying to make a play on a pickoff attempt, but, um, you know, maybe in that situation you want him to just focus in on the batter. Uh, Kiermaier with a kind of an uncharacteristic one as well. When you see a team like the Blue Jays playing what we'll say has not been their absolute best baseball, but they're still stacking up the wins. Do you lean more toward that's a positive that, that they're still able, still able to do that stuff? Or is it more of a, Hey man, these habits are still in there a little bit. You're, you're kind of playing with fire here. It depends. You want to stay within yourself. So I think there's a difference between the Kikuchi pickoff play at second base, which I think was like right idea execution, not perfect there. And there's a difference with Santiago Espinal trying to stretch a single into a double when I really don't think he had any hope of getting to second. No. He, I mean, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. has a tremendous arm. And everyone on that team should know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, you should very well know that. But even if it's, like, an average-armed outfielder, I think Santiago Espinal's still getting gunned out and there. And Espinal, like, sneaky, kind of slow. Yeah. Not, not not the team's best base runner. Perhaps so. not as fast as he thinks he is. Yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, at, at that point, you need to understand your limitations, understand where you're at in the order, understand, like, the cost of making an out there and not make that mistake. But I didn't mind the the pickoff play at second. It just was, you know, the execution wasn't crisp. And then, obviously, Kiermaier in center kind of compounded things. But I, I like that the Blue Jays take those chances. We saw the one with uh, Vlad. The back pick at first base. At first yeah. base, right? Jansen to Vlad. And that's one that I didn't ask about this specific play, but often Don Mattingly will call those from the dugout like he'll kind of give it to Jansen that like hey we're going to go for this here and then Jansen and Vlad non-verbally communicate mm -hmm. like it's cool how much happens in a pitch clock era especially yeah how much like communication happens to put that play on from dugout to catcher to first baseman and it was beautifully done it was a perfect spot for it and got the Blue Jays out of a tough jam late in the game so I, I think they should still be trying to do stuff like that yeah and, and I mean there's a, there are a couple arguments to do stuff like that right it's first of all it's, it's demoralizing for the hitting team right you yeah. you get an out that way it's demoralizing for the base runner um, we've seen when the Jays are having trouble with that 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 stuff can snowball on you a little bit so you want to put that on the other team and yeah I mean that play in particular we all know Jansen as a defensive catcher, we, we all like what he does back there. And we hear great reviews about him calling games and stuff like that. But that's one of those ones. I, I know the, the metrics don't love the defensive season Vlad's having, but the that's a tough one for a first base because you're trying to navigate like how big a lead does this guy have? How much can I shade back toward first base without giving away that the play is coming? You've got to have your glove in a precision point for that throw there there's there are so many things working together they're not just the communication but the actual execution of it it's a lot of fun there's a lot of timing 
that goes mm-hmm. into that, right? And yeah, timing of when Vlad breaks or first, like timing of how Jansen set ups and sets up and like gets the throw off, and even from the pitcher not giving anything mm-hmm. away as well, right? Because the pitcher might be aware that that's happening. Certainly with Kikuchi on the play at second, I mean, you can see. And the Jays need to change this tell because it's very obvious now, but like Jansen will kind of drop the glove and and that's when the pitcher turns around and, and guns to second. So teams are going to have picked up on that if we've picked up on that. Yeah. So they got to change that tell to something else. But it, it, you do have to have the catcher communicate that to the pitcher in some way. Like that could be like a clasp of the glove. I've seen mm-hmm. that one. Sometimes it could be just something in the catcher's setup. Point the knee in a different direction back there or something like that. But then you get into like, if it's too subtle, maybe the pitcher's so locked in that they don't pick up on it. (laughs) Like you want it to be uh, like a certain amount of obvious because in the words of Whit Merrifield, pitchers are kind of (laughs) dumb. So you do need to make it somewhat obvious for the guy on the mound. Was that a quote? I can't remember if you did this as a story or if it was uh, in one of your your Blue Jays Central or or sideline uh, reporting hits. But I assume that came up when you talked to him about being like the league's most prolific third base stealer? That was very early this season. <laughs> okay. I talked to him about like, how are you so successful at stealing third base? And that's what he said. I said, pitchers are kind of dumb and it's very easy to pick up on their cues. Whit Merrifield, again, by the way, a guy who has like flirted with that line between mm-hmm. a little too aggressive at times and has had to maybe rein it in sometimes. But like he is a guy who has the speed to make those plays that a guy like Espinal, you know, got caught, caught, uh, caught out on on the weekends. So. Yeah, and this has been his least effective stolen base season in terms of success rate. So maybe there is something there, but still, I mean 19 stolen bases, the Jays need that little bit of a uh, little bit of base running punch. Uh okay, so to, to circle back to the kind of high level item that they're not playing their absolute best baseball and they're winning games. Have you started the few I feel like whether it's you or Ben or, or Shire or whoever Hazel even the the party line right now that that gets spoken in a lot of post games is our best baseball is still ahead of us. How much has that kind of sunk in for this team and become the talking point in that room the last little bit? I've been hearing that for months now, just even in casual conversations, like not when I'm sticking a mic in somebody's face of guys saying, man, like we just have not even touched our potential. We haven't played good baseball yet. We're frustrated with the baseball we've played. We we don't feel like we've all come together and really clicked to this point. So it's one thing to say that and it's another to go out and execute on it and actually like literally play better and not only play better against bad teams, which like the Blue Jays are the best team Mm -hmm. in baseball against bad teams, but they're going to have to play better against the Orioles. They're going to have to play better against the Yankees and the Rays and the Red Sox. Like once, when that part of the schedule comes back around, the Blue Jays are going to have to win more of those games than they have to this point. But that's been something that has been in that clubhouse in conversations that you have with everybody in that clubhouse and on that coaching staff for a long time now. Like they all believe that we have not played our best baseball yet and and we're only going to get better. And that's another one of those things that can cut two ways because you can hear that, you can believe that, and you can say, damn, well, this team, if if they get on a roll here, they could be really good. And I think anyone can look at this team and be like, yes, the bats and the starting pitching and the bullpen – even if it's a it's fake that teams find it very often where all of those things are clicking at once, you know, you can get two of those things clicking at once a little more than the Jays have. So you can be really optimistic about that. And then the pessimistic side of it will be would be, well, the Rays have completely come back down to earth and it's kind of 
you know, the story of the middle part of the season to date was really about missed opportunities. And a lot of that was around hitting with runners in scoring position and left on base and things like that. But you look and the record in the American League East or being five games under 500 or sorry, five games under 500 against winning teams. And you see as the Rays come back down to earth now, you're only six games out. It really does feel like that should be even closer. Um, plus the Orioles have been able to make up some of the ground that, that you haven't. Um, I know that, you know, in late June, John Schneider got asked about this a couple times about the division and goals for the second half. And he was kind of like, guys, it's late June. There's a ton of baseball left to play, even with a six game gap still. Is that a reasonable stretch target for this team down the stretch here? Winning the division? Yeah. That's what they want to yeah. do. That's what Matt Chapman told me on the weekend was like, we're going to run down these teams. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what we're trying to do right now. That's our goal and our focus. Matt Chapman's the leader in that clubhouse. So I'm sure that's how they all feel i mean what you're talking about right here speaks to the missed opportunity of the last like month month and a half two months like if you look at every american league team over the last 50 games and i've done this a couple times on the broadcast they're all mid they're all between like 24 and 27 wins it might be the orioles and jays of 27 and then like four teams of 26 and five teams of 25 Every team has like performed exactly the same over a pretty substantial portion of the season. We're talking like 50 games here. So if the Blue Jays were able to play hotter over the last several weeks, I mean, the division would look a lot more realistic Mm -hmm. than it does today. And and that's with them being 24 and 14 since the start of June. Like they've, they've been good. It's just, man, you could have been even better or that, that chunk of late May, or even, you know, you go back to that Texas and Miami stretch where they lost a couple in a row playing some pretty bad baseball. Right. So I, I like the thing is you can't count on the Rays to continue to underperform as they have. Like you can't count on the Yankees and the Astros to not get hot. I mean, those teams are going to add at the trade deadline. Those mm-hmm. teams are going to get better. Those teams are going to get healthier. They're going to find internal improvements. They're going to learn more about the players on their roster and how to properly deploy them. Um, and they're also going to end up playing like the poor teams in the American league and sometimes the national league as well in a more <laughs> balanced schedule. So you, you can't just count on them continuing to be mid uh, as they have been. So it's like, it's incumbent on the blue Jays to do what they've done over the last two years and be a really strong second half team. Last couple of years, they've been like a six forty winning percentage in the second half. It would be great if they could do that again. I don't yeah, know I'm on board. Much- I don't know how much you can count on that. Like, I don't know how sticky that is. It's was. not, is the thing. And like, even like, I don't know. I, I got a question in the text line a couple of weeks ago that was specifically about Bo Bichette and that, because it really does feel like he has been that guy. And and obviously a huge chunk of that is he was the hottest hitter in baseball in the second half last year. But then I went back to 2021. It was almost identical half right. to half. And like, maybe you could argue that was a better because they went to Rogers Center after, you know, Salem Field and Dunedin for a chunk of the year. So just maintaining was was good. But yeah, you can get into the individual stuff and it's not it's not particularly sticky. I mean, the argument for it would be, well, you make good deadline ads and and you get guys who are maybe peaking later, but at the individual level, there's not a, the only, like, it's one of those things where even if it was a tiny bit sticky, you would need a good explanation for it. And the only one really is like, well, you showed up to camp, not ready to go. Right. So like, if it was older players or, you know, if Kirk has a hot second half, maybe I'll understand the, the cause underlying that one. But yeah, in general, I don't think that some guys just like, or some teams on mask and just be like, yeah, we'll turn it on now. If I'm really reaching, I could be like, oh, well, they're veterans who know how to manage their gas yeah. tank. They understand it's a marathon, not a But sprint. they should manage it to win the division then, not to just <laughs> sneak into a two-game playoff run. 
mm-hmm. especially after the last two years where one year they missed by a game and then last year they're at bounced in the in the the wild card in two games like you would think a, an element of managing that would be hey we gotta the veteran side would be like no we gotta put foot on the gas from the get-go and then we can let up a little bit where we need to um so one of the ways the Jays could potentially get better in the second half is they might have more than four starting pitchers. Uh, now, the Kevin Gosman of it all on the weekend threw a bit of a wrench in, hey, they have a five-man rotation. They have an off day Monday. They can line that up and they can get back to, you know, getting a guy like Brios or Bassett or Gosman an extra day of rest here and there. Uh, the Kevin Gosman side discomfort has required a, a bit of juggling here. What was the latest on Gosman's status yesterday? I know you, you mentioned on the broadcast he didn't do a full bullpen yesterday. No, he didn't throw a side session yesterday, which was the tell for us that he wasn't going to start in the Padres Tuesday. series. Right? right yeah or at all at, yeah at all really but yeah it's certainly not tuesday he did some throwing on the field um and now the blue jays have pushed it back to where he could start in that seattle series or he could not we'll see like i think it's still very much an active discussion of what's best short term v long term it reminds me of the situation last year when kevin gosman took that liner off the ankle mm-hmm. and was like fighting and fighting and fighting to stay off the il and get back on a mound i remember we did this daily dance where he would go out and he would throw in the outfield and see how it felt and you know then we'd have to you know come back and talk to guys but oh yeah it was a little bit better he made some progress we're gonna push him a little bit give him another day here another day here I think if the Blue Jays like could rewrite history, they would go back and IL him from yeah. the because he started on the Saturday prior to the break. It's essentially going to be 14 days. So it was 11 last year, and yeah. that's what I'm thinking now is you could retroactively put him on the IL. Uh, July 8th was the last time he pitched. So if he's not going to pitch this weekend, it would make sense even if he's only one start away just to IL him to get the extra bullpen arm around. But we live in a world now where the mo- like the maximum you can retroactively IL someone is three days. Right. So you can you can no longer go back to that you Saturday. You can't the use break. the All Star break. And, right. Yeah. So if the Blue Jays are going to IL Kevin Gosman, honestly, they should do it today. Right. Right. Because they just should do it as soon as possible and take advantage of that seventy-two hour retroactive window. But they are also so far into this thing now where it's very tempting to be like, all right, let's just see if we can get them through it. Yeah. It's going to end up being a non-IL IL stint. It's going to be at least 14 days, if not 15, 16. We'll see. And it's one of those things where, you know, in the in the middle of in a season that's operating normally, you can get by with that. Right. But you're also looking at a weekend where you didn't have Jordan Romano or you only had Jordan Romano available in an absolute necessity situation as they try to be cautious with his back that flared up at all-star. Um, and, you know, you have a fifth starter back, which is great, but it also means your bullpen's one arm shorter than it has been. Uh, and you've got three guys in Garcia, Swanson, and Meza who are top 15 in the league in appearances. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is like a, there's a trickle-down cost to this. Um, I, I guess we'll we'll find out shortly on the Gosman front. Like you said, it would make sense to ILM today if he's not great for anyone who missed it the way the rotation is going to line up for the Padres series is Manoa Tuesday Barrios Wednesday Bassett Thursday we know Kikuchi will pitch at some point in Seattle and then uh then we'll see from there uh assuming Kevin Gosman was healthy was the plan coming out of the break to roll the five guys in order and use the off days for extra rest for Bassett Barrios Gosman to to just kind of you know try I, I believe someone used the term like you're trying to make up the, yeah. the fatigue that, that they weren't able to get those extra rests during the first half? It's funny because you're trying to do that and you're also trying to split up Kikuchi and Manoa. Mm-hmm. And immediately those plans are blown up. Yeah. Right? Like within 
three days, those plans were blown up because now you're back to just rolling out Brios, Bassett, like Manoa, well, Manoa, not really, but Brios and Bassett on four days Mm -hmm. rest, which you didn't want to do. And you're back to Kikuchi and Manoa being back to back (laughs) in the rotation. So it's just, it's funny, like how Unless Gosman can go Friday. Yeah, we'll see. But it's, it's funny how much like you try to like engineer, like, you know what I mean? To engineer things and to line things up perfectly. You've got all these best laid plans and then baseball just blows them up. Yeah. In a matter of seconds. Yes. So Uh, uh, that's, that's where the Blue Jays are at right now. There's also like the Hunjin Ryu thing hovering over this as well. This is where I was going to go next. And you say baseball can blow things up and, and you know, the, the Dan Schulman phrase is things have a way of working themselves out when it comes to, Oh, you might have too many arms. Who do you option? That kind of stuff. You know, Adam Simber gets a rhomboid or, or whatever things, things have a way of working themselves out. So when we talk about Hyunjin Ryu and his potential return, you don't want to be negative, but it's entirely possible that in the short term that gets resolved because Kevin Gosman needs an IL stand or Alec Manoa is underperforming or Yusei Kikuchi is underperforming or whatever. Um, But the latest on Hyunjin Ryu, he threw five innings at AAA Buffalo on Saturday. Very pitch efficient. Um, what are you hearing about where Ryu is? I, I know it's August third. They have to they have to make a decision on that as his rehab time comes up. So we got a couple weeks here. But but what's the latest on Ryu? So the the big positive from that outing was he took a step velo wise. He sat and it's going to be funny to say this. He sat eighty eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he touched he touched ninety. <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, for him, like that's what you want to see because prior in his rehab it had been more so in that 87 touching 88 maybe 89 range so he took a step there and I think that you would hope that with some increased adrenaline from pitching at the big league level that then he could be back up to the all right now we're sitting 89 and you know dipping into 90 more often uh which is what you're gonna want to see from him obviously not someone who relies on velocity Mm -hmm. but uh, but he averaged 90 in 2021 when he had, you know, his, his best run as a Blue Jay, really. You'd like to see him back, yeah, in that, around that range. I don't know that you want to see him sitting around 87, 88. Uh, yeah. But it, the good news is, look, I, I don't believe he's walked anybody on his rehab assignment. So he's he's hitting the corners. Like, he's his own percentage has been very high with, with all of his pitches. He's going to throw 85 pitches for somebody uh, this coming weekend. Could be Friday, could be Saturday. Could be for AAA Buffalo, could be for the Toronto Blue Jays. I think I think both things are are on the table. If Gosman's not available to pitch, I think you if you're the Blue Jays, you look at your options as either we go back to the Richards Bowden Francis well, mm-hmm. or we just have Hunjin Ryu throw those eighty five pitches for us. It's gonna be for somebody who's gonna throw them. Uh, if you don't have Kevin Gosman on the weekend, you might as well have Ryu make that start. And if you don't have Kevin Gosman, you mentioned the Manoa Kikuchi back to back and wanting to avoid that. Well, is it any better to do a bullpen day versus get five and dive at a, at a Hyunjin Ryu? And you're right. He hasn't walked anyone down there. He's got 11 strikeouts to zero walks over 12 innings. And, and obviously at this stage, I don't, I don't think we're penciling him in to be a high K guy and seeing the, you know, some of the swings on some of those pitches, they're not major league strikeouts, but you know, the the command and the willingness to throw that stuff around the zone so you're not walking anyone is encouraging. Um, Average exit velo has been very low for him yeah. as well. He's been getting a ton of soft contact. I mean, he got he gave up one solo shot with Buffalo that was, like, crushed. It was, absolutely, it was a bad mm-hmm. pitch and a bad count, and, and he paid the price for it. But otherwise, it was a lot of soft contact because he's been targeting the edges. Mm-hmm. What you want to see from him, he's a finesse pitcher. And even if, so say you get Hunjin Ryu back to like, all right, I'm past my rehabilitation. I'm 
Jin Ryu again. I'm just a big leaguer. He's still just like a two trips through guy, mm-hmm. really. Like you're not looking for him to be Kevin Gosman. You're not even looking for him to be Chris Bassett, right? No. You're looking for him to five and dive. And he's shown that he's getting close to being a guy who can do that. Yeah, and when he... So last year, when the six starts that he made before he he was done, he was averaging four and a half innings per start. And even in 2021, he made 31 starts. He threw 169 innings. So it wasn't, you know... Certainly, we'd all love 2020 Hyunjin Ryu back. I think that's a little behind him now when you're uh, when you're 36 and coming off of Tommy John. If you can get five and dive out of him, that's like I mean, it's such a big addition to to this team anyway. Um, but is that like that's that's probably the upside of what we can be expecting? Anything on top of that is hey, pleasant surprise, right? Yeah, I mean, he's going to be the uh, most expensive sixth starter in baseball. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. But hey, it, it was it looked this like. Last year when he hit the IL and you hear, oh, at that point, he's 35 years old and he's going to undergo UCL reconstruction. We thought he was going to be the most expensive. Hey, are you watching to see if you get some insurance money back? Like, right. that's, that's what the expectation was. This is gravy, really, relative to what we thought, you know, this time a year ago. And this is the time, really, to get any of that benefit out of him because he's unlikely to be on a postseason roster, mm-hmm. really. Like, as, if everybody's healthy and effective, which is, like, the biggest if of all time, yeah. but, like... If you have like a Gosman, a Brios, a Bassett, like all, a Manoa, all throwing well, mm-hmm. all healthy going into the postseason, those are your four. Yusei Kikuchi's probably in the bullpen. Hanjin Ryu's just not a guy you're going to put in the bullpen. So he's un- he's he's probably just kind of cheerleading in yeah, the postseason. Mark Burley role. Essentially, right? Yeah. He's just kind of there for the vibes. Which, yeah. hey, with him, the vibes are pretty good. I mean, the fact that, you know, he's in the minors and between each start, they're bringing him up to the major league team to be around because everyone loves having him around so much. Like, that. that's a over 162. That's a real component. That has something to do with like the facilities sure. as well, right? With the trading. No, staff to me, in it's Toronto. just it's strictly like it's strictly vibes for, for Alec yeah. Manoa's uh, positivity. Yeah. Is that what it's strictly for? Um, so you mentioned you know six man rotation. So there is a, and again, these things work themselves out, and we can't assume full health and stuff like that. If we assume full health, though, and within the next two weeks. Hyunjin Ryu is ready for the major leagues and he has to be activated because his rehab time is up. There is a little bit of a weird decision for this team to make because six man rotation sounds great, but there is a cost to that because it means one less arm in your bullpen. You can't just carry an extra pitcher. You're not allowed to do that. The only team that's allowed to do that is the angels because Shohei counts as a hitter. (laughs) uh, So they get an extra bullpen arm out of him. Uh, Another value to trading for Shohei Otani, by the way, you can have an extra bullpen arm around. Um, But realistically, you know, if this team has a six man rotation, your bull, not only is your bullpen, one body short because of the roster rules. You're also looking at, well, we just lined out at least two and maybe three, depending on where your confidence level in Manoa is of your rotation arms are only five inning guys. How do you manage that? If you're John Schneider and you already have a bullpen that has been among, at least at the back end, among the most heavily worked. The, like the, the, the nice solution, I guess the simple one would be, well, you say Kikuchi is going to be Andrew Miller. And he's going to throw two inning, like, bulk relief in the fifth, sixth inning. Mm-hmm. You, you run into a team like the Diamondbacks where you're facing a ton of lefties and a bunch of switch hitters who you'd you know, rather be hitting from the right side. You throw them against them. And, mm-hmm. and you go, maybe even takes a trip through, right? Like, yeah. Um, so the Rays, ton of lefties, mm-hmm. right? Although they kind of match up with anybody. You can definitely see the utility there. Uh, you definitely just need to check in with like how you say Kikuchi would respond to that Mm -hmm. role shift. And And we've seen him, obviously he did that last year and you know, the 
ERA results weren't very strong, but he struck a lot of guys out and, and was a good teammate about it. But this is also a guy who, when he gets hooked from a game, gets pretty fired up about it. If he gets hooked yeah. from the rotation when his numbers are much better than last year and he's been, you know, for the most part, an improved pitcher. Yeah, there's a there's a relationship management element to that as well. And absolutely the right call to lift Yusei Kikuchi from that start yesterday when John Schneider did, bringing in Jay Jackson when he did, like 1,000% the right call. And, it, and the results bore that out, but I think the process does as well. And I think that the third trip through numbers against Yusei Kikuchi really speak for themselves. So uh, it would be interesting to see if they could shift him back into that role late in the season and say, look, you did it last year. You struck out 40% of the guys you faced yeah. when you're in that role last year. We're really happy with the steps you took. You'll start again for us next year, but the way you help us win now and the way you help us get to a World Series is by being Andrew Miller. Yeah. Is, is by being that, like, overpowering left-handed strikeout option. Multiple inning. Bullpen, right? Yeah. yeah. And you t- you probably tell him, too, like, look, man, like, we're not starting you in a playoff game. So if you get used to this role now, <laughs> yeah. and obviously, look, a couple weeks ago, it looked like if you made a seven-game seven, ra- a seven series, Kikuchi was starting a game because Ryu was so far away and Manoa was in the minors and things like that. But realistically, you're not starting him. So I, I don't know. I'd hope you're able to sell him on that. And You got to feel really good about your starting options yes. at that point as well. So you got to feel really good about, like, Alec Manoa. Who, mm-hmm. Look at his, Alec Manoa's last four starts. Two of them have, and I'm including the minor league ones. Okay. Two of them have gone really well. Two of them have been disasters. So it's no sure thing that Alec Manoa is just going to be the 2022, 2021 guy again going forward. So No, he's a guy, I mean, he's another guy where, similar to where the bar was for Kikuchi this year, similar to what we're talking about with Hyunjae Ryu, if Alec Manoa looks like a capable fourth starter the rest of the way, given how the season started, I think you're okay with that. Like if he's a 450 ERA guy the rest of the way, that's still so much better than where things were. And you dive deeper into that Tigers outing prior to the All-Star break, and we didn't see that missing inch of horizontal, right, from his slider. That mm-hmm. wasn't back. We still saw him spraying his fastball mm-hmm. a little bit. What was better was he was making the in-game adjustment to get back into the zone. And so when he was missing arm side or missing well above the zone, he was kind of figuring, he was finding that adjustment, finding that delivery, that tempo and athleticism down the mound to get himself back in. You're going to want to see him repeat that. You're yeah. going to want to see him do it again. I just, I, I need to see the slider be effective because yeah. that was the word. I mean, triple A, we could see it and we have the stack cast day or double A rather. We have the, we have the video of it. We have the, the numbers and stuff. And then the complex league start, even when they were saying, well, he checked this box and he checked this box for us. John Schneider still let it slip. But yeah, the slider wasn't really there. Like he checked every box, but the slider, it's like, okay, well that was his best pitch last year. Like I, I would like to see the slider back at some point. I'm really curious to see Alec Manoa's next outing, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think like how he performs there um, is going to say a lot about Blue Jays trade deadline strategy, about, you know, what they do with their rotation going forward, how they order things, like how confident they would be in making that Kikuchi move if they do make it, what they do with Hunjin Ryu. Like, there's he's a massive swing piece for this team over the next two weeks. It's just Alec Manoa and just what version of Alec Manoa the Blue Jays are going to get. And we're a couple weeks removed from Ross Atkins saying you know, in a media availability that, yes, some of it depends on Ryu and Mano's progress, but it's a team that was looking at the starting pitching market at least a little bit. Um, would you imagine there's, uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks, you're probably looking at everything, but the timelines don't align here where, like, you're not going to know you're not going to have enough Alec Manoa starts to be confident. You're not going to have enough Hyunjin Ryu starts to be confident. Um, what is your 
thought process on the starting pitching market? Is it only if something really, you know, value-wise falls into your lap? Or, or what are you thinking there? I'm looking for, like, a length pitcher, okay. which is, like, a, a difference from a starting pitcher, yeah. right? So I'm looking for this year's Ross Stripling, this year's Mitch White. Nick uh, Anderson. You know, I, I look at a guy like Michael Lorenzen, right, who yeah. you could, like, spot in as your number five starter easily, or a guy who can go to the bullpen, like a Nate Eovaldi type, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm looking for somebody like that who, sure, yeah, you need me to make starts, I can do that, but I have experience in relief, I can throw bulk relief, I can carry 97-98 over multiple innings, like, I can maintain my stuff in in relief i've come out of the bullpen before that's a guy who's a real weapon in the postseason that's a guy who can help you in a variety of ways down the stretch and you don't like box yourself into you are only a starter for us like that's the thing with hunching Ryu is he's not going to be a reliever no. for you so you bring him back he's only starting so you are somewhat limited you get more utility with that lorenzen avaldi type uh lorenzen like pretty realistic i think honestly if the blue jays want to go out and acquire him i don't think the cost would be super high from the Detroit Tigers. No, I, I mean he has the the All Star thing on his uh, <laughs> on his player yeah. page now. But I hope I, he I got a nice bonus for that. Yeah, I hope great. so. Um, and I mentioned Nick Martinez just because San Diego's here this weekend. Uh, you know, we'll see if the Padres actually hit the sell button. They are way out of the playoff race, but they they're so heavily them and the Mets. They're both so heavily leveraged. Like, do they actually sell? If they do, both of those teams have some nice pieces that. A team like Toronto might want, but uh, Tommy Pham, Mark yeah. Canna from the Mets, yeah. like those two guys would be great. David fans. Robertson, I mean, the yep. price tag's probably high, even though he's a, a pending free agent, but another guy who's you know been one of the best bullpen arms in baseball. And we'll talk about the bullpen a little bit uh, after the break. Here, we'll take a break. Arden Zwelling staying with us as JS Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy, Arden Zwelling of Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca still with me. We're a couple weeks out from the trade deadline, which is always a lot of fun. It means we could sit here and do entire shows of just like, ah, what do you think of Mark Canna? What do you think of Tommy Pham? What do you think of Andrew McCutcheon? And we'll probably do that a lot over the next two weeks. Uh, if we look back on last year's deadline, uh, the Whit Merrifield edition, certainly a good one. The Zach Pop and Anthony Bass for Jordan Groshans. Uh, none of those pieces are really doing much right now. Zach Pop in AAA looking moderately better. Um, Anthony Bass still a free agent. Jordan Groshans still not hitting for power. He is not a big, a big leaguer, leaguer? Uh, not at the moment. He's okay. gotten cups of coffee. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, his numbers at AAA last I checked were quite bad. Because okay. this time of year, you're, you're trying to reevaluate the process from some of the last couple of years. And the reason I start with this is because at some point we think in addition to, hey, what's going to happen with the rotation? How does that affect what the bullpen looks like? You would imagine the Jays, like every team who's headed to the playoffs, will be moderately interested in some bullpen arms. Um, last year, one of the arms they added was Mitch White. Now, the plan at that time, the idea at that time was, hey, maybe we could turn him into something long term. And then you just had such a need at the major league level that he had to start and it wasn't very good. And then he obviously lost most of his offseason this year. Uh, I mentioned him, Arden, because whether it's come trade season, if they add another piece or just as they manage, you know, Zach Pop, Bowden, Francis, Thomas Hatch being in, in AAA, a couple of those guys being able to offer length. Chad Green's going to get into game action sometime soon, it sounds like. Mitch White is out of options. 
I know you'd prefer to keep the guy that doesn't have options as, as a way of maintaining depth, but Jay Jackson's outpitched him. Trent Thornton's outpitched him. Bowden Francis and Thomas Hatch have. Is Mitch White, especially after a day like yesterday when you can't even save the back end of the bullpen in a blowout, is his job status here maybe a little tenuous? The absolute worst thing you can do in that position is force your manager to have to bring in a high leverage yeah. reliever. And that's what happened. And that just like breaks your pitching coach's back and just breaks your manager's back because you so want to give Eric Swanson a day off there, leverage the off days, already one of the most used relievers in baseball on pace for like, I don't know, 75 appearances or something crazy. Like you really want to manage that workload when you have the opportunity. So to not accomplish that is a really, really bad look. The out of options thing complicates this. If you're the Blue Jays over the next two weeks, I think you're trying really hard to find a trade partner for Mitch White. You're trying just someone who can afford the 40 man spot and give you someone off the 40 man. It doesn't have to be like just for Mitch White because the Blue Jays are in a position where they do kind of need to make one of those 40 man consolidating moves mm-hmm. a la the Steven Matz trade or yeah. Green um, Ryu and whoever they were to pick up at the deadline. Right. I'll need 40-man spots. Even you look at the Whit Merrifield trade last year. Mm-hmm. That was a little bit of a 40-man consolidation move. Yeah, Max Castillo and Samad Taylor. Right, yeah. And, you know, Max Castillo, who came up to the big leagues last year, got his cup of coffee, showed he could be competent at the big league level. Well, yeah, Bowden Francis looks kind of similar this year, yeah. right? He's in a similar position. So you, I, I think that if over the next two weeks you're looking as the Blue Jays to do something like that, with Mitch White, because otherwise you might be forced into an uncomfortable scenario of having to DFA a player who you just used like pretty decent minor leaguers to acquire a year ago. I mean, that is a a bad trade to this point. Yeah. And Nick Frasso has come down to earth a little bit, but the velo and the strikeout rates are still the velo and the strikeout rates. And, and even if he's given up some home runs at double a, you still wonder what could have been, but Hey, Alex DeJesus hit for the cycle. So it's one of those trades where like, we, we can look at it 10 years from now and look at the four players that were in that trade and be like, wow, none of those guys even played a full like <laughs> big league season. <laughs> like none of those guys were ever anything as major leagues, right? You see so many of those at the deadline where we like, hone in on the micro samples of what happens immediately following it and try to grade them. And then you look 10 years down the line and it's like, Oh, right. None of Derek Fisher, Aaron Sanchez and uh, Joe Biagini and whoever else was in that deal ever became anything. Right. It's funny. I was watching a Phillies game on the weekend and Jeff Hoffman gave them two innings of like electric bullpen work. And I look at the numbers <laughs> and he's got like a 230 ERA now, huge strikeout rate. And it's like, oh yeah, it took him a decade and like four different franchises to become an effective reliever over half a season. Like that's, and he was like the crown jewel that they gave up in the, all those deadline moves. And so often it's, can this player get onto a bad enough team to give him runway to figure some things out? Because that's the problem. The Blue Jays right now don't have the runway to give Mitch White to work through things. Mm -hmm. They are pitching him like once every nine days. So he really doesn't have the opportunity. You look at a guy like Ryan Noda, who the Blue Jays like trade to the Dodgers because they didn't have the runway to give Ryan Noda an opportunity. Dodgers didn't have the runway either. Don't add him to the 40, lose him or lose him in the rule five draft to the Oakland Athletics. Oakland's like, hey, we're a terrible team. We can play Ryan Noda every day. And here's Ryan Noda having a very nice season because he found his way to the opportunity where he had 
the runway to play and to actually figure some things out at the big league level and yeah. fulfill the potential that we all saw in him. The smart teams like the Blue Jays and Dodgers saw in him. They just couldn't afford in a win-now position at the big league level to be playing Ryan Noda as often as the Oakland Athletics could. And often when, you know, when a smart team misses out on a guy, you... Tra- if you if you can trace back the logic to how they lost them in the first place, it's often, yeah, 40-man crunch or roster crunch. Even, like, you can look at, you know, Nathaniel Lowe on the Rangers. It's like, wow, the Rays lost the guy? They were on the wrong side of one of those Rays moves? It's like, yeah, because you can only have 13 guys on your major yeah. league roster, and they are already trying to get playing time for every single one of those guys. So um, how does that shake out? So Mitch White could be in trouble. Uh, Chad Green, next step is in-game action. Um Chad Green, to me, is, and you can tell me if you disagree, is even more of a, what we just described with Hyunjin Ryu, where it's like, yeah, if he gives you something this year, that's awesome. Uh, I am not operating around the deadline as if Chad Green is going to come back and be Chad Green. I think you're going to see Chad Green's name pop up on a minor league box score this week. Okay. Uh, I think that's very likely to happen. And at that point, the Blue Jays have 30 days yep. to make a decision. And I expect that they will use that full 30 days. Well, the closer you can get to that September roster expansion, the easier something like working Chad Green back in gets, right? 1,000%. And it's not like he's pitching for his contract next year now, which in a way, Hunjin Ryu is, right? Yeah. Chad Green's got a deal for next year. The Blue Jays are going to be paying him next year. So uh, it, you can afford to like take that time with him, where with Hunjin Ryu, there's a bit more pressure of like, hey, I got to get back to the big league level and show teams I still got something so that I can pitch for someone next year and go make some money. With Chad Green, you you have more runway. It's interesting. If you'd asked me about Green v. Ryu like six weeks ago, I would have told you, based on what I was being told, that Green is ahead of Ryu. And we're going to see Chad Green before we see Hunjin right. Ryu. And they were on the same track. Like uh, At one point, a lot of the updates were like, yeah, they did a one-up, one-down, or they both yeah. did a, a bullpen session. It's like, well, Chad Green only doing one inning at a time should be able to progress more. But to me, I think what you're saying, you know, we can see that in the process without seeing what they're seeing medically and stuff like that. Yeah, they have a lot of incentive to take the time with Chad Green. If he wasn't going to be here before the deadline, you may as well be as patient as you need to be. For roster management. Yeah, I think this, you know, Green's rehabilitation from UCL reconstruction, like, has not been as smooth as, as yeah. Hunjin Ryu's, just based on the progressions that we've seen and based on what we were hearing about both of them six weeks ago. And I do think it is one thing when you're a finesse pitcher coming off of Tommy John, another when you're someone who does actually rely on velo and stuff, mm-hmm. like Chad Green does. And, you're, like, his velo before the surgery was down to, like, 94-ish, and he was still getting results, but, like... The secondary stuff is going like the curve, but the hammer is is the pitch for him. But it's going to look a lot different if guys can look at 92, 93 versus if they can look at 94, 95. And when you're trying to like rip off that curveball mm-hmm. and really throw it with intent and like maximal intensity and force, that takes a lot of confidence in your arm, right? And that takes a lot of confidence in a like very like severely like reconstructed literally elbow. And you have not thrown a pitch with that type of intent intensity in a long time. So it can take some time to regain that confidence and that trust and that ability to put it out of your mind that like, oh, hey, last time I did this, my elbow snapped. Like, you know, I do think that there is an extra hurdle there for guys who need to pitch with that nasty stuff. 
So I think it can actually take a bit longer for guys like that rather than if you're hunting Ryu, you're just going out there to kind of paint and pick corners and try to carve and try yeah. to throw, you know, turn left when hitter thinks you're going right and, and do that sort of thing. So I can imagine there's some of that at play here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the full exertion style of reliever is, uh, yeah, the physical and mental hurdle to that. So um, we're not penciling Chad Green in anytime soon. We assume the Jays will be in on bullpen arms because every team is in on bullpen arms. This is also a Blue Jays team, and we saw a good example of it yesterday. Even though they put up seven runs, facing a lefty who doesn't have significant platoon splits now or in the minors or anything like that, nothing that specifically says, yeah, he's death on lefties or, or should be. They go eight righties in the lineup. Um, that's as many as the Jays can put in the lineup. It's because their lefties have not hit lefties. Um, they, as a team, haven't really hit lefties that well. If they're looking for something on the position player side, would you guess it's a righty who hits lefties pretty well, preferably someone who could, you know, spot in at, at some outfield slash DH time? Ideally, righty switch hitter who can play a corner outfield spot. I mentioned uh, Fam and Canna mm-hmm. earlier. I've been banging the Randall Gritchick drum for a long time. He's only owed like $3 million prorated over the rest of the season. And the Blue Jays are paying some of it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're already paying him. <laughs> he might as well play for you if you're yeah. paying him anyway. Uh, and look, you, his numbers against lefties this year have been really strong. He's done some encouraging things with the strikeout and walk rate. Yes, he plays a Coors Field. I get it. But he's playable defensively in all three outfield spots. Yeah, he's, And you know you know him well tendency-wise and outfield-wise and stuff like that. He's familiar with your environment. He knows your people. The effort level from him was always super high like you know good character guy and you know if he was willing to accept a lessened role and not play every day and just be a somewhat of a platoon bat a pinch hitter i think that makes some sense now this is kind of crazy and it's another former blue jay but i had this thought this morning and because i was like i don't want to just go in and like give like the same old names that i give everywhere i was like hmm like how can we get creative and get another guy who hits lefties onto this roster well behind the plate you know alejandro kirk things haven't been going that mm-hmm. well you're kind of thinking like maybe his playing time's minimized down the stretch you know you always want extra catching depth Anyway, I mean, Jan Gomes is kind mm. of an interesting guy. and he's, He know, had a couple years of just mashing lefties there for a little bit. He hits lefties really well. Could he still play a corner outfield? I don't know. I doubt it. He, you could probably throw him at first base. Good veteran, character guy, gives you some catching depth. If Kirk's role is going to be minimized going forward anyway, doesn't hurt to have another catcher around. That way you can tell Dalton Varsho to finally hang up the gear, <laughs> right, and just focus. Look, they were down to Tyler Heineman being hurt while yeah. Kirk was on the IL, and they still <laughs> weren't talking about Varsho potentially catching. It's done. You fantasy right. players out there, you will not have catcher eligibility for Dalton Varshow <laughs> next year. I'm sorry. We love what Danny Jansen's doing, mm-hmm. but like his workload's going to increase over the coming weeks just based on Kirk's performance. He's a guy who's had injuries before. If he catches a foul tip the wrong way or gets hit by a pitch or something, if Alejandro Kirk gets hurt, maybe not the worst thing in the world to have Jan Gomes around like on your bench pinch hitting against lefties, getting the occasional start against lefties, and then maybe taking on a, a bigger role if if something goes wrong with the, the top two catchers on your roster. And the the cost of having a third catcher, well, look at how this team uses the last roster spot anyway, right? Like right. we, okay, Ernie Clement's an extra reliever, and, and Nathan Lucas is a pinch running specialist that they rarely ever use to pinch run. I, I think you could justify a third catcher there. Um the Kirk thing, are we now far enough along that, you know, last year he had a very terrific first half of the season, but the numbers te- 
tapered off in the second half. He has obviously not been very good at the plate this year, especially when it comes to hitting for any semblance of power. Do we have to move forward, at least in the short term, as if this is who Alejandro Kirk is at the plate because the sample is larger at this point than the sample of him being the Alejandro Kirk we all got so excited for? For the next two months, yeah, certainly. And I think this offseason, the Blue Jays need to have Alejandro Kirk in Dunedin as much as possible, working with their strength folks and with their hitting folks, like working with their high performance, their nutritionists, like all those people to put himself in a better position to have a more successful 2024. Like I think that's got to be the goal. Still very young. And we know it's in there. We saw the like elite performance. This guy's a silver slugger. That doesn't happen by mistake. Mm-hmm. He started an all-star game. Doesn't happen by mistake. The power has just eroded. The contact ability is still there. Full marks to him for improving defensively, framing, blocking grades very well in those metrics. But like at the plate right now, you just cannot count on him for an extra base hit. You can count on him for you know a ground ball single, but you need more than that. Yeah, from him. You count on him for a professional at bat. But what does that do for you in a in a playoff race, right? Like there are other guys out there who can give you a professional at bat too. Um, last one for you on the trade front. Um, another guy who is young and we've seen better of him in the past and the team is obviously very invested in long-term. A scenario where they add a Fam Gritchick type. Dalton Varsho at risk of losing some playing time here. His WRC plus is down to 78. Obviously the base running and defense are what they are, but the offensive numbers have continued to go in the wrong direction. Um, I, I'm not suggesting he would become a bench piece or anything like that, but you know, a, a couple a month ago, I might've thought that that right-handed outfield slash DH option was a, Hey, spell Kirk, make sure belt doesn't have to play against lefties and the odd lefty keep Varsho up. But it's starting to feel more like it could be with the right guy, uh, a kind of a straight platoon and, and you just don't have Varsho in there against lefties at all. There, There is a scenario where the Blue Jays try to do like some of their work for 2024 now. Like the Whit Merrifield deal. Exactly. And it would be perhaps to replace a Whit Merrifield or to replace a Kevin Kiermeyer or a Brandon Belt or a Matt Chapman. There's a lot <laughs> some of holes coming. consistent hitters, players on this team who are coming off of this roster ahead of next year. So in that scenario... And I've kind of looked at, like, could you get creative with the Dodgers for a Chris Taylor, right? Mm-hmm. Could you get creative with the Astros for a Chaz McCormick? Like, is there something creative that you can do there? There is a scenario where you bring in somebody who needs more consistent playing time, and they eat into some of our show's playing time against lefties. Definitely some of Kiermaier's playing time against lefties. They might eat into some of Brandon Belt's playing time. Ultimately, that's a good thing, mm-hmm. having more capable players, having, like, all this all these players and not enough playing time to give them and being like, man, where are we going to distribute these plate appearances and these defensive innings rather than, man, who's going to cover <laughs> these, these defensive innings? Who's going to take these plate appearances? At this point in the season, you want to be putting yourself in that former position heading into the postseason and just creating like as deep and versatile uh, of a roster as possible, building out as much utility. So it is a possibility down the stretch. It is a possibility. Lots of possibilities ahead of deadline season. Uh, It'll get even more exciting to talk about if the Jays keep playing some pretty good baseball here. Uh, Arden, you're going to probably join us again next week, uh, I would assume, because I'll keep bugging you ahead of the deadline. Uh, Thanks for taking the time out, man. I appreciate it. Anytime. Arden Zwelling of Sportsnet, of Sportsnet.ca. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Tim Brown, formerly of Yahoo Sports and everywhere else writing about baseball, has a new book out called... The Tao of the Backup Catcher, uh, Eric Kratz, a former Blue Jay, a big part of that book, as well as other former Blue Jays like Josh Tolley. Uh, we'll talk to Tim about that. And then Ginny Searle of Baseball Perspectives joins us around 1130. Uh, all that's next as Jay Stock Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360.
Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Good hour with Arden Swelling there. Uh, we'll have Arden and Ben Nicholson-Smith and the rest of our sports people in and out a lot over the next couple of weeks because it's trade season. And uh, looking up, hey, how does Jan Gomes hit against lefties these days? Or when was the last time he played a position other than catcher? 2019. Um, yeah, that's the, the fun of this time of year, and there are no shortage of bad teams. And hey, Jan Gomes... Maybe he has a future uh, helping Tim Brown out with the sequel to the Tao of the backup catcher. Tim Brown uh, has that book out now, came out July 11th. He joins us now. Tim, how are you, man? I'm doing great. Blake, how you doing? I am doing well. I'm very excited to read the Tao of the backup catcher. Uh, curious, before we get into the specifics of the book, uh, I know you'd mentioned before and in interviews for this book, you've always kind of in your role, and I know you've done some basketball basketball as well, but, but primarily baseball in your career, you've gravitated toward the backup catcher type. I have as well, and, and I'm curious as to why you think that might be for your, for yourself. I, well, Blake, I think it started out where I was a young man covering Major League Baseball for the first time back in late 80s, early 90s. And I just need to get educated on the, on the big league game. You know, you, you, we follow baseball all our lives. And then suddenly you're standing in the middle of a clubhouse trying to figure out how all this works. And I found myself in the corners of clubhouses uh, – talking to backup catchers. I, I felt like they, they saw everything. Uh, they had a great perspective on the game and the world. They had a great sense of humor. Uh, they're very approachable guys. They're very humble because of, you know, the lives they lead up and down, journeyman-type stuff, hitting 204. And it just was a very easy place for me to go to get educated. And so along the way, uh, that just kept happening. It just felt like every clubhouse I walked into, this was my favorite guy. And this was a guy, a smiling, approachable dude who I could just walk up to and talk ball with. Yeah. And hey, it's uh, it's paid off here getting to know them over the years. You know, Caleb Joseph's a big part of our broadcast all the time now. He's a guy, you know, back in Baltimore Orioles spring training in 2016. I remember picking his brain a ton about Dylan Bundy at the time. And, you know, we have Joe Siddle on our broadcast as well. Buck Martinez, we're, we're flush with backup catchers as part of our broadcast team here at sports that uh, I am curious it, it, why, I mean, you, you kind of just laid out why a, a backup catcher might have a particular insight into the game, but a lot of baseball players do. What do you think it is about backup catchers that make them? And, and some of these names I mentioned were starting catchers at, at some point, but the backup catcher to broadcaster pipeline, why is that such an effective uh, kind of talent development for, for baseball media? That's a great question. I, I think, Blake, uh, I would suggest that, like you and I, they watch a lot of baseball. Uh, you know, maybe from a slightly different angle, usually from the top rail uh, of the dugout. But I also think that the, the relationships they gather along the way. And, uh, you know, John Schneider is a, a perfect example of a guy. In fact, he and Eric, I'm, I'm sure, played together a lot were on a lot of the same rosters coming up they were drafted a year apart from each other 
And I think you just start to create these relationships and uh, form opinions about the game and the way the game is played and, and how it should be played. Uh, you know, there, there's just so much about these guys that slops over into real life, into expressing uh, strategies and emotions and philosophies to other people, right? You know, they, they have to form these relationships with a pitching staff, with new teammates all the time, uh, whether it be, you know, I, I think they're actually really engaged in helping to uh, bring the next generation of catchers along because they do spend some time in AAA, even as sort of older guys. Uh, they're also raising perhaps the next generation of coaches and managers, uh, guys who may maybe don't have a lot of big league experience. And, and this is this is how we how it's done in the big league. This is what works in a clubhouse. This is what doesn't work at a clubhouse. This is the sort of strategies they're employing up at the big league level that you maybe want to think about. So I think it's that sort of breadth of knowledge, breadth of experience that allows them to uh, become this guy. And plus, I think they all have big personalities. It's part of the job, part of some of the, the, the values and the virtues of these guys to have these personalities that allow them to connect and relate to other guys and therefore listeners, watchers, uh, reporters, whomever. It works. So, Tim, in a part of that is, you know, what you just kind of laid out gets at one of the, the questions you grapple with in the book is, you know, that type of personality and skill makeup, whether it's soft skills or baseball skills, you know, is that something you can learn to be and develop into? Or is there too much of a personality element that, you, you know, you just kind of have to be born as someone who suits the backup catcher kind of ethos? Um, in writing the Tower of the Backup Catcher, did you land on either side of that question you'd kind of been kicking around? Are you born to be a backup catcher? Are you bred to be a backup catcher? <laughs> I, I think you lean, I lean more toward born to be a backup catcher. And I include in that the skills required to actually reach the big leagues or reach a place that's very near the big leagues. You have to be uh, greatly skilled, certainly defensively. And I would even argue that if you're playing once, maybe twice a week, and manage a 209 career batting average like Eric Kratz did, you probably have to be a pretty good hitter. I'm not sure a lot of guys can play once or twice a week and, and, and hit that way. But I think that it, you can acquire skills to be a good baseball player, right? I think you sort of have to be the kind of guy who becomes a father figure, a big brother, a therapist, a priest, a drinking buddy, all the things that you, you hope that a backup catcher can be. Uh, I think that's in your heart, in your soul, or it's not. And, and I think that uh, I think those who maybe have the skills to be a backup catcher physically but but perhaps lack the personality are the guys who perhaps don't stick around in the big leagues the way uh, Eric Kratz did. 
that's a it's a great point and, and you know it's the the book it reads and and again I, I haven't got it just yet but i'm very very excited for it and hearing you know jeff passan and, and a few people like that rave about it uh, and eric kratz um you know on, on foul territory um it, i'm very excited to check it mm-hmm. out and, and something that i'm you know I, i've been curious to see if i take from it and i'm curious if you took from it or, or think people can take from it especially i think of young athletes that kind of process of you just mentioned i everyone who gets to the big leagues has a certain amount of skill that helped them get there but it's a a different process to accept maybe that you're a backup catcher and that's what your role is going to be versus you know a, a lot of guys who reached the majors were probably very very highly touted prospects at one point um, when you think about the lessons from this book the lessons from talking to all of these backup catchers who have embraced their lot in baseball um, what do you take from that what do you think other young athletes can take from that you know, I think that, and I don't want to get too deep here, but I'm sort of an older guy and I have sort of views on the world and and all, but I think it does flip into real life, the way that we conduct ourselves. You know, we're all on our unique journeys. Uh, you're a broadcaster. I'm a writer. Uh, your listeners do what they do. And you don't always get to decide where the journey leads, but I think you can choose who you're going to be on that journey. And I think that's what these guys had in common. Uh, uh, Most of the guys I spoke to, and and it was dozens of guys. And, And the other part of it is that when I finished, as I was finishing my conversations with these guys, I would always ask, are you proud of your career? And almost to a man, they said, you know, I wasn't always, but as time has passed, I have become really proud of what I was able to do. And and then I would ask, well, what are you most proud of? And almost invariably, they would say, I think I was a good teammate. And, and I, I don't know, you'd have to ask my teammates, but I think I was a good teammate. And, and I think to me, that's, when you're done with baseball or you're sort of getting along in life, if you can look back and say, I was good to the people around me, I helped the people around me. Maybe I didn't achieve all of my dreams that I had when I was 24 or 18 or whatever it was, but I helped other guys reach their dream. I I don't know if if there's a lot more you can do with a life and a career than that. Hmm. No, it's, it's very well said. And it's, you know, again, I think it, it could be a very good lesson for athletes at, at any level. And, and, you know, that perspective of, hey, here are all the paths that your career could take. And, and like you said, you can't choose exactly the way it's going to play out, but you can choose how you handle it. Um, curious. So Eric Kratz ends up becoming uh, a big part of this book. You, you wrote it with him. I, I, if I am understanding right, you didn't set out to write the book with Eric Kratz, but in talking to a lot of different backup catchers, he kind of became the, you know, the, the narrative through line uh, of the book. What was it about, you know, getting to know Eric Kratz and doing this stuff with Eric Kratz that made him emerge as such a big figure in this book? Well, it really came along in 2018 when uh, he had sort of grabbed hold for, for one of the first times in his pro career, the number one job late in that 2018 season in Milwaukee. And I thought that was cool. Okay, here's Eric Kratz's story. And there were stories out there about his wife, Sarah, and their 
their road to to get Eric to 38 years old and still in the big leagues and 14 different organizations and and nine different teams in the big leagues and 120 some transactions and she was such an instrumental part of this thing and I thought wow what a cool story and then like the dozen or so guys showed up in Milwaukee during that playoff series against the Dodgers. And I thought, wow, I don't have 12 friends who would like put on my old clothes and show up at anything I ever did. So this guy's kind of special. And as I thought about him, that's when I started thinking about all these other guys in, in the decades prior that I had talked to. And it sort of came together for me that, that his story could serve, as the backbone of this greater story about not just one backup catcher or all the backup catchers, but this sort of wispy culture of backup catchers that I think forms sort of the foundational soul of the game. And so that's one type of backup catcher. And of course, like you mentioned, 14 organizations played for nine different teams. I think Paul Bacco and Henry Blanco are the only catchers to have played for more major league teams than Eric. Um, So that's one type of guy. That's one type of guy that the guy that, you know, has value everywhere and every team needs a third catcher here and there. And you end up on a lot of different teams. Another type of kind of career backup catcher is Josh Tolley, who appears in the book and just kind of, you know, followed Ari Dickey around and was his personal catcher. I I know when he was with the Mets, he had a larger role for a little bit there, but he spent four four seasons here in Toronto and was basically just the Ari Dickey catcher. Um, What were your conversations with with Josh Tolley? Like that, that's a, you know, same kind of, same ballpark here, but a, a very different style of backup catcher, I'd imagine. Yeah, Josh was great. Uh, he, uh, I found what what I found interesting because from the outside looking in, all those years, I, I did not cover Josh and RA. I didn't live in a town that they played in and things like that, so all I knew is what I read and what I observed, and sort of when they came through town. And. I was really surprised to learn that from Josh's point of view, they had a bit of a difficult relationship. Hmm. Uh, Josh felt sort of, he'd been shooed off the mound a few times by RA and didn't, I I think ultimately didn't feel particularly appreciated by RA. And the, you know, what I, what I learned in talking to Josh was that a, in a pitcher catcher relationship like that, a personal catcher uh pitcher relationship it's the catcher who brings the flowers you know it's the catcher who's doing the wooing and i you know i thought kevin cash for example was another guy who sort of latched on to tim wakefield another knuckleballer and it was a very similar relationship where he said look if 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 tim wakefield wanted to get a beer at midnight after the game i would go get a beer if he wanted to get up early and go get breakfast I would go to breakfast with him. If he wanted to throw on the side 14 days in a row, I threw on the side with him before, you know, you just give yourself away to these guys. And, and I think they actually had a better relationship uh, at, at least from Kevin's perspective than Josh. Did. And I, and I think what I, what I learned is that even with what Josh described as a tough relationship, he showed up every day. He sh- it, it, it wasn't part of, it didn't affect the job he did for RA or for himself, that he was going to show up regardless of how he felt like he was being treated uh, and, and fulfill his duties to that guy. 
Huh. And that's, it's very interesting to hear. And, you know, I'd be, if, if R.I. Dickey ever wants to come on the show and, and uh, discuss his side of that, that would be interesting to hear as well. well that, I, spoke, I actually, yeah, I actually sent an, uh, an email to R.A. and said, hey, uh, this is sort of interesting. I didn't realize this. And he was surprised. Hmm. He, he believed that he and, and Josh had a great relationship. So, uh, which again, speaks to Josh just putting his head down and he was not going to complain and just get through it. So yeah, uh, R.A. was actually quite surprised to learn that Josh wasn't enamored of their uh, relationship. Yeah, that's a, it's a, I mean, seven years together, you, you think you would have a conversation about it at some point and get on the same page, <laughs> but I guess it's uh, it's uh, always easier said uh, than done. I, I'm curious, Tim, as you know, as you, the, the book is out now, it came out last week, you're, you're doing the media rounds, so you can kind of sit back and zoom out a little bit. Curious, when you see where baseball is now, having talked to, you know, a lot of guys who played over the last couple of decades for this book, where do you see the role of the backup catcher evolving? Because I, I can see it going a couple of different ways where now we have pitch calm and there's certainly a much greater emphasis on, you know, catchers being able to, help game plan and understand the analytics side of the game to, to keep their pitchers in the best possible positions. You know, we're coming back around to a scenario where, um, Hey, emphasis on the run game is going to go up now that stolen base attempts are up under the new rules. Um, and also, you know, I, I think we see more split time catcher situations now that then straight starter and backup because of load management and things like that. Where do you see the future of that position going? Yeah, I agree. And I think this has been coming a little bit, Blake. Um, you know, I go back to, you know, I, I spent a long, long time talking to a guy named Bill Plummer, who was ultimately Johnny Bench's backup in Cincinnati for a long time. Uh, his first year in the big leagues was with the Chicago Cubs in the late 60s. And the number one catcher for the Cubs, Randy Hundley, started 156 games at catcher that year. Bill Plummer had two at-bats. Um and this was before he got traded to the Reds. So it, it's been coming, you know, and I, I agree with you. I think that there are, uh, I think there's still general managers who fit backup catchers into whatever analytical model they have. So it's a, you know, 26 men fit into this analytical model. And, but I, I you know, and, and I think a certain percentage view the backup catcher as the one outlier, the, the guy who maybe, and, and we're talking specifically offensively, right? Um, maybe you have a right-left sort of plat almost half platoony kind of thing or something like that. But, yeah, I mean, I, I could see it. I mean, I think it's where it is now because of the, you know, you don't want your catcher, like, blown out and, and all that stuff. And, and really how many offensive-minded catchers are there not too many, so perhaps you start to see the more defensive forward uh, guys who don't perhaps produce with the bat getting a little more playing time because of this, you know, uh, run defense kind of thing going on. But I don't know. I think it's going to sort of sit in this spot for a while where, where guys are still thinking about offense, 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 and that leaves perhaps a backup catcher type um, in the shadows a little bit. Hmm. 
Uh, yeah. Or, hey, you're the it's the All-Star game and you're the backup catcher in the All-Star game and you win the MVP. There's always a lot, lots of different types of <laughs> right. uh, backup catcher. So, Tim, you, you are a New York Times bestselling author. You've also written books on Jim Abbott and, and Rick Ankeel. Uh, curious, when, having written the book on Rick Ankeel and getting to know that entire story, the switch from pitcher to hitter. Um, I mean, we can all appreciate Shohei Otani, but I feel like you might have like one of the best lenses into just how special what Otani he's been able to do um, this year in particular in the last couple years is um, how, how much has the, the Otani experience hitter and pitcher at the exact same time led you to reflect on, Hey, Rick and Keel switched roles and that was awesome. But this is a, a whole other world to be doing them both at once. Yeah. I mean, this guy, this, I honestly think this is the best baseball player who ever lived. Uh, I've come to this conclusion that I've I've never seen anything like it. I don't think anyone's ever seen anything like it. And we may never again with with the way the game goes. Just the the one thing that sort of blew me away with the Ankiel story was the kind of athlete, uh, a guy who can give away all those sort of formative at-bats, right, from the time he's 18 to 23 or or 24, you know, all that, all those reps being cutters and sliders and all that stuff. And instead he's just a guy who pitches and, and then can rally back and, and somehow make a, make a career out of playing in the outfield. I was like, sort of when I really sat down and thought about it, like, wow, this is really impressive. Now the Otani thing, I was around the angels a lot when he arrived and I still remember his first batting practice with the angels in spring training, it was sort of a gray drizzly day and he goes jogging past and just jogging by you. You think, Whoa, (laughs) there's a guy who moves differently than, than anybody else in this camp. And by the way, Mike Trout is in this camp. And then on this sort of cool drizzly day, he starts banging balls off the batter's eye. And I thought, Wow, this is really something. And toward the and and he didn't have a particularly good spring training uh, offensively that year. And we show up in Oakland for his debut. And on that day, he had scrapped a high leg kick and just moved to like a little short step and started raking. <laughs> this guy overhauled his batting approach, his mechanics, in about three hours. And then just started going off. And then just said, yeah, this guy is just special. I mean, it's going to be a really interesting couple of weeks here to see what the Angels decide. And uh, if they do decide to move him, how that shakes up whatever's going to happen for the, for the three or four months that follows. Yeah, I'm, if I'm them and I decide to move him, I'm telling every team, name name your price. And if I'm every other team, I'm telling them, name your price. Take whatever you want. Take anything you want out of the system, whatever. Take the take every player ranked in the top 200. I, I don't care at this point. Um, Tim, last one before I let you go. So Shohei, pitcher and hitter. I know you're also a basketball guy and a golf guy, though. Steph Curry on the weekend <laughs> hits a hole-in-one, then Eagles on 18 to win a tournament and is, of course, the greatest shooter of all time. Um, how does that compare? I know it's very sports talk radio to do the, oh, Shohei or versus Steph or, or, you know, what's more impressive <laughs> or whatever. But I'm curious, you having, you know, been been around all three of those sports, how impressive is the uh, the Steph double dip for you? 
I'm always shocked. That I've seen a lot of basketball players. I, I used to belong to a club in L.A. where uh, James Worthy was a member. And I, I would always look and think, man, he is so far away from the ball. I can't believe <laughs> that he can even, like, play this game. But you know what I was really struck by is, yes, the pure athleticism. And he's got a nice swing for a guy who's not a pro and, and all that stuff. But the a guy who's won championships and MVPs and, and all this stuff, the pure joy of that swing and then the reaction to that swing, I thought, God, he's just like untainted by hmm. fame and, and all the stuff he's already done. He's still so in the moment. And, you know, he sort of airplanes up to the green and takes a lap and everything. And I just thought, man, we all, we all had to sort of bottle that up and, and remember that, that these moments are great and fun. And even if you're playing with, you know, your three buddies on a Saturday morning, that it's just fun. It's supposed to be fun. And, and I think that's what really struck me about it. I was like, wow, good for you, man. Forget about the shot. <laughs> just, just enjoy who you are and, and where your feet are. Yeah, that's, it looked very cool, and, and a couple other guys out there having a blast uh, as well. Although, I, I will say, the one thing that I, I note from an athletic standpoint is, like, tends to be really good three-point shooters who are good at golf, like J.R. Smith, Steph Curry, Kyle Lowry, Ray Allen is a really good golfer. Those seem to be the kind of... There's, there's obviously some sort of finesse or, or hand-eye overlap there. Uh, Tim, how's your golf game these days? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I just recently moved to North Carolina, uh, and so I'm still sort of feeling my way around. It's okay. You know, some days, like everybody, some days are better than others. <laughs> well, Tim, uh, congrats on the move. Congrats on the towel of the backup catcher, which came out last week, and people can get it wherever they get their books. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time out. Thanks, man. It was a lot of fun. Have a great day, Blake. Tim Brown, author of The Tao of the Backup Catcher with Eric Kratz, Josh Tolia, a bunch of other um, voices in that book as well. You can follow all his baseball work at by Tim Brown, um, one of my longtime favorite baseball writers at Yahoo at uh, just about everywhere over the years. The Tao of the Backup Catcher, playing baseball for the love of the game is the name of the book. Uh, we're going to take a break. We come back uh, as we approach the trade deadline. There are a couple of teams who expected to be buyers that should probably consider selling a trio of them in the national league. And one of those teams is visiting Toronto this week. Ginny Searle editor at baseball perspectives wrote about those teams and decisions that the Mets Cardinals and Padres have to make how that could affect the trade market for a buyer, like say the Toronto blue Jays, over the next couple of weeks, we'll take a break. We'll talk to Ginny Searle of Baseball Prospectus as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That was kind of awkward. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, that was a great discussion uh, with Tim Brown. Uh, Eric Kratz, by the way, former Blue Jay, who is uh, a big part of that book. Uh, part of some some bangers uh, of Toronto Blue Jays trades back in 2013, 2014, by the way. Traded with Rob Rasmussen for Brad Lincoln. Brad Lincoln, of course, famously the, the Travis Snyder return. And then the Jays turn around and flip him with Liam Hendricks 
to the Kansas City Royals for Danny Valencia, uh, who was a part of these teams for a little bit. Liam Hendricks, who, who knows, health permitting, maybe on the trade market this year, maybe on the trade market, some San Diego Padres, some St. Louis Cardinals, some New York Mets. We'll see if those teams who expect to be competitive this year push some chips into the middle. Uh, Ginny Searle, editor of Baseball Prospectus, wrote about just that this week. Ginny, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? I am doing well. So you write about these three teams. Uh, the Mets managed to beat the Dodgers yesterday, but they lose two of three, including some very hilarious Metsing against the Dodgers over the course of the weekend. The Padres managed to lose in 12 to the Phillies and lose three of four. Um, the Cardinals, I guess, took a couple off the Nats, but that piece pretty timely as a couple of those teams continue to struggle. Um, how strongly are you feeling right now about you know, that, that trio of teams you wrote about Mets, Cardinals, Padres, and their, you know, the need for those teams to, to kind of push some chips into the seller's market these next couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think especially the Cardinals are probably just, you know, too far gone to get back into it. I think there's something like 12 games out uh, and the Mets and Padres are a little bit closer, but it's just hard to see things turning around, especially because there's even with three wildcard spots, there's, a lot of teams ahead of them both. I think like seven ahead against the uh, the Mets and maybe five of the Padres. So it's it's worrisome. It is worrisome. And, you know, the Cardinals are straightforward enough, like 11 and a half games out of the wild card. And John Mazeliak said basically um, the quote you included in your baseball prospectus pieces, we're not necessarily waving the white flag, but all decisions or all moves we do are going to try to set us up for next year. When you look at the Cardinals, um, who are kind of the more interesting names if they do try to sell a couple pieces here with an eye toward next year for them? Uh, yeah, so I they have a lot of pitchers who are on expiring contracts. Mm-hmm. I believe Jordan Montgomery, uh, uh, Jack Flaherty. Uh, I think there were three or four there. Jordan Hicks as well. As well yeah, are, yeah, Jordan Hicks. Thank you. Uh, and you know, I think it's pretty pretty easy to trade all of those pitchers because you know it might make things even rougher here for Cardinal fans towards the end of the year. But most of those guys aren't going to come back regardless, and you got to try to get at least some short-term value, I would say, in trading them. But I do think on the hitting side, it becomes interesting because their hitting is just so much better than their pitching this year that you almost think, well, should they try to make some sort of move to get a little bit of that pitching value traded for pitching, pitching talent or sorry, for hitting talent? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one and a name that you, so, you know, the rental pitchers, I think we can all see the the logic in and understand why you might sell those guys. Even if you plan to turn around and try to sign them back in the off season, uh, get something for them while you can. I, I think the market for Hicks and Montgomery would, would be pretty strong, but a name that you mentioned as a, just kind of a hmm in that piece of baseball prospectus, uh, Paul Goldschmidt has a little bit of time left on his deal, but he's about to turn 36 and I'd imagine a couple of contenders could use uh, a big righty bat like that. Um, I, I know you threw it out there as a possibility and it was, it's just analysis, not reporting, but what do you think the chances are a Goldschmidt could, could hit the market? And what might that look like for, you know, the rest of baseball? If a, if a name that big suddenly became available. Yeah, I, I think the chances are low just because I think John was has been with the Cardinals for 20 plus years and I think has been the team president for like 16 and I feel like you don't get that way without being relatively conservative and not taking huge unnecessary risks and you know Goldschmidt won the MVP last year I think if he were to get traded and have another MVP year next year and 
that trade would not work out for the Cardinals half. I think that that could reflect pretty badly. So in terms of actual chances of happening, I would say it's low. But I, I mean, I do think it's something that would be very much worth considering because, you know, it's, it's one more year on Goldschmidt's contract after this. And we saw with Arenado that it's possible to extend it, but also with someone that age, it's a little bit dicier. Uh, and the truth of the fact matter is if, if the Cardinals have the same problem next year where their pitching is really bad, then it's probable that Goldschmidt would go on to the market at next trade deadline for a lot worse of return. So I think just unless the Cardinals can figure out a way to fix their pitching, then it might end up coming this way anyway. And it's possible that one of the best ways to fix their pitching is to trade someone like Goldschmidt, is I guess my argument would be. Yeah, and it's a good argument. But like you said, Mazeliak has been very, very conservative over the years, and that's part of his longevity. Uh, two teams that have not been conservative recently are the Mets and the Padres. They are yeah. uh, The Mets are eight and a half games out of a wild card spot. The Padres are eight games out of a wild card spot. These are teams that have spent liberally. They have, in the Padres' case, traded prospects pretty literally, liberally. Uh, the Mets are, I mean, they've been such a high media market item uh, with with exactly how they've gone about it. So with these teams, you know, the logic is every bit as there as the Cardinals with how far out of the race they are. But when it comes to a GM like AJ Preller with the Padres or an owner like Cohen with the Mets, are, are you less confident that those teams will actually do the the self-serving thing and be sellers over the next couple of weeks? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Mets maybe have a little bit of a different different because although, you know, they spent just as much as you said, they, I think I said in the piece that they're playing with house money, basically, but they're, they're the Mets. They they have all this, all the money in the world, just like the, just like the Yankees always have, and they'll, they'll be fine. So I think even if their fans are frustrated, they, they lost Edwin Diaz all year. They've had some underperformances, especially on the pitching end. Uh, it's not, I think their fans would probably forgive it if, uh, if they were to end up selling, whereas the Padres have put so much into this long-term strategy of getting fans enthusiastic about baseball in San Diego. And I feel like it would be a pretty severe defla- deflation to just kind of stop that mid-year. And, you know, I think that what you said is it might just be the smart thing to do regardless, even if it's going to make fans upset because it, was, it, it probably looks worse to if they, you know, put more shits in and then they end up losing regardless. Uh, but it's a tough spot. I, I I think that the Mets would probably will end up seeing some some trades from from surplus, and the Padres. I feel like are maybe just a little bit too too in it. Yeah, not, not in the race, but in the uh, the mental race, I guess. Yes, yes, they're certainly deep in the mental race, and and the Mets have a lot of interesting names that I'm sure here in Toronto will will kick the tires on David Robertson for a bullpen, uh, Tommy Pham, uh, Mark Canna is not an impending free agent, but it's a team option for next year, so maybe he's another mm, yeah. uh, another name. All guys that could could contribute. Now the Padres have a long list of guys you'd like too, and and I wonder, Ginny, how much you're feel of this uh, of course there's like you said they have tickets to sell they have baseball to build in that market they're the very leverage i also look at the padres on paper and I, I guess the run differentials and things like that back this up too is they still look to me like a good team like the mets every so much has gone wrong for the mets and i'm like okay this is the the mets are metsing this year and, and that's all it is the padres they're running out of time here but it still feels to me like a team that has enough talent that they could go on an unlikely run here do you see any of that for the padres or are they too far gone in your mind 
I, I kind of, I'm inclined to agree just because, I mean, you know, it's nothing that we weren't thinking about all year and it's been go- going bad, but the lineup is just the really strong lineup, right? You have players like Machado and, uh, and Tatis Jr. have really not hit their stride this year still. And you just kind of figure out or figure that they're going to at some point step into that really superstar talent level. I'm so sorry that we're going to see. Um, and I, so I think that there's a good chance that they could turn things around because you mentioned they have the positive run differential. I think that they at the all-star break had the highest run differential of any of the NL wildcard teams. Uh, Still true. So, you know, it, run, yeah, it's not everything, but I do think it's it's probably telling that they've had sort of the short end of the stick with luck, whereas the Mets and Cardinals have just not performed. Yeah, or the Brewers in the NL Central who have a negative run differential and are 10 games over 500 <laughs> somehow. Baseball is not fair sometimes. Um, on, yeah. the, on the American League uh, side of this, um, and, and I know your article at Baseball Prospectus was NL focused, um, but I also know you know you and Craig Goldstein had looked at the two LA teams not not that long ago, and particularly the Angels and how they might handle uh, another Mike Trout IL stint <laughs> and a lot of injuries there. Yeah. Things are not going well for them. They they lose a tough one last night. They're now six games out. Um, I know we all it's not the best thing in the world if Shohei Otani gets traded, but us getting a couple weeks to talk about it is at least a, a good thing. Where, how do you feel about how, whether the angels should explore that over the next couple of weeks? Or, you know, are you of the mind that with Otani, if you have a 0.01% chance, you, you may as well ride it out. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's hard because I, I'm nominally an Angels fan. I grew up as an Angels fan, but it's a, it's hard to root for this team when it seems like they're just so constantly cursed. Um, I, I guess my thing would, would be that I don't think that the angels have done well enough with player development that, you know, a lot of teams you might think, well, they'll get probably the best short-term rental that teams gotten since 10, 15 years ago when teams were suddenly actually trading their top prospects for six months of guys, you know, that doesn't happen anymore, but I think Shohei Itani is probably the, the one player who might actually make that happen might get a, a top 50 prospect or even a couple of top 100 prospects for that short period of time. But the Angels have just not excelled, especially on the pitching side with development. So, I mean, it makes it seem pointless, but I guess if you're running a baseball team, you can't necessarily feel that way. Uh, I just the, I don't think that there's really any chance that, that Otani will re-sign with the Angels, especially because they've once again underperformed. But... It is a tough decision. I I have to imagine that, that he won't end up getting moved just because, you know, then you're the, the guy who traded Shohei Otani if you're Perry Manation, uh, the GM. But I I think that if, if someone really blows them away, especially if the Angels don't gain, gain any ground in the next few weeks, it's it's sort of the same thing as these these other teams. If you're not, if you're just going to try to tread water when you're that far out, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. It 
dozen. And, you know, Shohei, I think wherever he gets traded, we're going to play out the Shohei Otani free agent market and we're going to see what that's like. And if you trade pieces for him, you know, maybe you're you're even more inclined to or, or you have less leverage come uh, negotiation time because you have leveraged assets for him. Uh, but it's Shohei Otani. It's maybe the greatest player any of us will ever watch. And if I'm a team or if I'm a radio host of a team that that is in a in the playoff mix, um, there's no price you couldn't ask for. Speaking of that free agency. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, speaking of that free agency, Ginny, uh, someone you wrote about early in the season is a Toronto Blue Jay, Matt Chapman. You, you wrote about his big breakup. Break, breakout early in the season. It was a great piece over at Baseball Prospectus. He's settled back into a little bit more of who he is at this point. I, I know your your article at the time kind of ended with, man, Matt Chapman's really uh, really stands to make himself a ton of money. This is still a pretty thinned out free agent class in the winter ahead. Um, where where do you think Matt Chapman lands in all of that? You know, now that he's come back down to earth a little bit better than his last two or three seasons, but not quite, you know, MVP candidate level, Matt, Matt Chapman at the plate. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that his defense has still looked pretty solid. I don't know if he necessarily has looked like the, the all world defender. He was a couple of years prior, but I think he's still been a, you know, a solid defender at third base at minimum, probably better than solid. And he's, you know, again, he's not been a, an MVP caliber hitter, but he's he's definitely a silver slugger type hitter, right? Uh, if that's if that's how we want to say it. Uh, but he's you know he's he's been roughly the player he he was with the A's, I would say, uh, back when he was at kind of the height of his of his popularity. And I think that that's someone who will get a lot of money. Uh, third basemen are it's it's I think a little bit concerning that he might eventually have to move off third base just because he's past 30 at this point. But I think that there's been a lot of third basemen like, you know, Nolan Arenado who have really aged gracefully, gracefully with the position. And I think that there's nothing that gold, or I'm sorry, that, uh, that Chapman has done this year that doesn't make it seem that he can be this version of himself going forward. So, I, I mean, I think if he's going to get a lot of money, maybe a shorter term contract, like five or six years or something, but I bet he'll get kind of that 20, 20, 25 million annual value. Which is a pretty nice, uh, pretty nice piece of business for a thirty-year-old uh, third yeah. baseman, and uh, you know, as much as it feels weird to say this in division, he really does feel like a future Yankee to me. I don't, I don't know why I keep coming <laughs> back to that. Uh, I don't like it, but it's, yeah, it's, it's. I, I guess it's just Do- Donaldson always. <laughs> it seemed like he could get into ten strikes, and I, I could totally see it with Chapman too. Yeah, for for sure. Um, Ginny, when you know we're doing a lot of, of deadline talk here. Um, you've we've mm-hmm. mostly focused on on the sellers here, particularly those NL teams. But when you look at like when you look at a team like the Toronto Blue Jays starting to heat up a little bit here, yes, against lesser competition, uh, but they won eight of their last nine. They're you know the AL East lead that Tampa had by a hundred games has shrunk down a little bit now. Um, American League wild card looking pretty competitive. Are, are the Jays one of the teams you're you're more interested in? and seeing, you know, how aggressive they are on the buyer side at the deadline? I think so, because, I mean, at the very least, they, they have to bring on some starting pitcher, I would say. Um, and, you know, you figure a little a bit of other supplementary stuff just to boost the offense and get how a few less holes there would help. But I would say that there's less of a obvious, if the Jays don't fix this, their second half could go poorly than a few of the other teams ha- have, especially like we've discussed. But I still think that they... You know they've they've been good enough that they're definitely going to be probably definitely an in on this trade deadline. I feel like the starting pitching is 
get another starting pitcher for uh, for Alex Manoa's spot is probably the the big one. I think that they've had Trevor Richards still, and if I'm not mistaken, but I'm not sure that that's a a long term solution, especially if you want to be in the playoff race. But yeah, I mean, I think that they'll. It's it's a little bit of a a thinned out market on the trade deadline, even at this point, because I don't think there's a ton of bats who are really that top tier. But on the pitching side, I think that's where the Jays can maybe stand to to gain the most. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to to watch play out and, and not you know, the spiciest of starting pitching markets, the way things look right now. But as your article lays out and as our discussions will go in the coming days, these next couple of weeks, pretty pivotal for those teams that are in the, you know, hey, six games out, eight games out, 11 games out. You got to make a decision sometime soon. Uh, Ginny, thanks so much for taking the time out. Uh, keep up the great work at, at BPRO and at the, uh, the defector crossover stuff you guys are doing, which is uh, always a lot of fun. I enjoyed your Manfred uh, Oakland A's piece that went up on defector as well. Um, thanks for taking the time out. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking with me. Ginny Searle, editor at baseball prospectus. Uh, be sure to check out all their great work over at baseball prospectus and sometimes uh, at defector. So the Jays are off tonight. There were a couple updates that Arden and I kind of zoomed through a little earlier. So if you miss them or if you need a refresher on them, here's how the Jays are going to line up against the Padres when the Padres arrive tomorrow. The Alec Manoa against Joe Musgrove, Jose Brios against Hugh Darvish, Chris Bassett against Blake Snell. And if you were thinking that the Padres record means that they're a lesser opponent, well, throwing Musgrove, Darvish, Snell over three games certainly doesn't sound like three-fifths of a rotation of a team that's six games under 500. They are six games under 500, but they've outscored opponents by nearly as much as the Blue Jays have, and the Jays are eight games over 500. So um, certainly not a Padres team to be slept on. Now, we've talked a lot today about you know, not not even a lot because we, we did a lot on the weekend. We had Tim Brown on to, to talk about his, his Tau of the Backup Catcher book. Um, but with Ginny, with Arden, we're starting to get our feet wet for deadline season. And, and that's going to be the case over the next couple of weeks. It's a very fun time. Uh, if you are looking at the Jays, obviously, you know, you can do the old Seinfeld on the, uh, on the subway with, with the nude guy bit of, Every, there's a problem everywhere, but you got to like their chances. Yes, you could you could want bullpen arms. You could want starters. You could want right-handed hitting. Um, you know, John Morosi, friend of the show, who, who will be on at some point, I'm sure, um, has said that actually the Jays are, you know, being linked to some left-handed hitters as well. Uh, they need help everywhere, but you got to like their chances. On the hitting side, they're coming in right now at seventh in weighted runs created plus. They've, of course, been, uh, they've struggled with runners in scoring position on the season, those numbers have started to come up where they're in the kind of middle third of the league now, still on the lower end of that, but those have started to normalize a tiny bit. Um, the big thing that's, sta- that's going to stand out is this team's inability to hit left-handed pitching at, at least, you know, through the depth pieces of the lineup. And that's where, you know, I'm going to continue to come back to, like we talked about with Arden, uh, a right-handed hitter or a switch hitter who hits lefties very well, who can maybe plug into a corner outfield, take some DH spots because you want to continue to find rest days for Kevin Kiermeyer. Dalton Varsho has not hit lefties. Well, Brandon belt, you're just not using him a ton against lefties. And then Alejandro Kirk, who was presumed to be the right-handed side of your DH situation sometimes hasn't hit in a way that, 
screams, hey, give me DH plate appearances. So um, some depth uh, probably in order there. The Jays, by the way, are 19th in the league hitting left-handed pitching uh, if you look at weighted runs created plus, which is kind of our catch-all that adjusts for a few different factors. Uh, They have not hit them for power at all. They do a pretty good job getting on base against them still, but they are fifth from the bottom in power against left-handed pitching. That is just not going to fly. You're not going to be able to beat teams with good left-handed pitching over a large enough sample if you can't hit for power against their lefties. And the teams that are below them are, well, you've got the Oakland Athletics, who are the Oakland Athletics. You've got Cleveland and Minnesota, who are both trying their best to lose the AL Central, it seems like. And then you've got the Milwaukee Brewers, who are 10 games over 500, leading the NL Central, but have been outscored like crazy. Uh, and, uh, you know, our old friend Rowdy Tellez hasn't homered in like 35 games. They're in a, a bad way there, too. So while there are some winning teams in that range with the Blue Jays, they're not the type of winning teams you want to be uh, emulating. So I'm probably going to come back around to a lot of times over the next two weeks, looking at guys who hit from the right side or switch hitters who, who hit better from the right side, who can fill in a corner infields or corner outfield spot, maybe even play some second base, get some DH opportunities. We'll talk about that a lot. Um, the other thing is, you know, depending on how things go with Alec Manoa, depending on the return timeline for Hyunjin Ryu, uh, depending on the health of Kevin Gosman, who I just laid out the starters for this series. He's going to get skipped uh, for this series as they try to avoid an IL stint for him with his sore side. Um, That'll dictate their need on the starting pitching side. Every team always needs bullpen help. Adam Simber is still not throwing. Chad Green expected to get into game action this week. Uh, Jordan Romano has avoided the IL so far, but they did not use him on the weekend to give him a little extra time there. So uh, a lot of things still up in the air. What's not up in the air is that the blue Jays are a good team that could use some help. So there's gonna be plenty of trade talk over the next couple of weeks, which is a lot of fun tomorrow. We'll t- turn the page and look more at this Padres series. Uh, Chris black will be in studio with us for an hour for his normal Tuesday spot. Uh, and we'll have Keith law on to break down the Jays draft picks. Only one of whom is reported as signed so far, but we'll go through all of that tomorrow. Uh, thanks again to Arden Zwelling, Ginny Searle, uh, and, and um, the, the Tao, the backup catcher for coming on with us today. Thanks to Jeff, Lance, and Jennifer behind the glass. Jay Plus back tomorrow on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360.